Well, good morning. It is good to see you. I'm uh, Rick Hazlip. I'm one of the pastors here at First City Church. Taryn uh, and his family have gone to Virginia. They've gone to Washington because he is going to be walking with Liberty University, graduating with his master's degree. Aren't you excited about that? I'm excited about that also. Uh, however, uh, he doesn't walk until next Saturday, and he's going to be gone uh, today all the way through next week. He'll be, he will not be here next Sunday. So next Saturday, well, we'll, we'll, talk, about, we'll talk about that later. So, uh, well, he, well he, he does listen to these sermons, so I don't want to tell him that we're going to be blowing his phone up. But we're going to blow his phone up and celebrate with him. Hey, wasn't yesterday fun? Serve day was so good. Do we have those pictures in there? We don't have those pictures. So we had, uh, I was sent some pictures and I tried to get them last minute. That's my fault. But I, this morning I got some pictures and I just put them all together and tried to get them up to Annette. And I'm so sorry I didn't get them up soon enough. And, uh, but but I, if you were there, then you know what a great day that was. Just serving people. And, and there were some people, we washed cars for uh, workers, case workers for foster care. And, and with these people, uh, they, they were saying, we cannot believe you're here just to wash our cars. People are always running after the parents of foster kids. They're always uh, running after, you know, the workers and the churches and all the people who are working with all of that. But rarely do people come and do something special for us. And we cannot thank you enough. We had other people at the Salvation Army and others like, well, where is this church? Or I have heard about this church and we're so glad we finally get to meet you. All those kind of things. You made an impact. And listen, God is so good, right? All we want to do is lift up the name of Jesus and just go serve our community. We're not even doing it. We don't, we really don't care. In fact, on our serve day shirts, the new ones and all, we don't even have our name, you know, on the shirt. It just says serve day. And all we want to do is just serve God. But the Holy Spirit loves it when you lift up the name of Jesus and just go serve in his honor. And so it, it's okay that he just comes back and has people saying your reputation in this community is, is so good. And I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of this church. And I'm so proud of the way we serve our community. That's what we're going to actually be talking about starting today and for the next uh, three weeks after. We're going to get into the series on Hezekiah. Now, Hezekiah does not have his own book. All right, so we're going to have to read in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles and a little bit out of the book of Isaiah just as a warm-up for all of that. Hezekiah was a priest and Isaiah was a prophet. Now, they killed the prophets because the prophet is the one who would stand in front of everybody and say, you have turned away from God and you better repent or God's going to get you. And everybody's like, boo, and they all killed the prophets. It's the priest who would go to the hospitals and visit and say, how are you? And what can I pray for? Everybody loved the priest. And yet when Hezekiah walked into this situation, it was not good. And he and Isaiah even disagreed on how they should go about restoring the people of God back to the heart of God. 
And yet God used both of them to do a mighty work. Now, if you have your Bibles with you, turn to 2 Kings chapter 12. And I want to get into this pretty quickly. In fact, what I want to do today is just introduce you to the big idea, introduce you to what it is that we're going to be talking about and how did God call Hezekiah. And really the big question is, what is it like? What does it feel like when you walk into a mess? Now, sometimes you just are born. And, and some of us, you know, grew up in families that were already a mess. We didn't ask for it. It was just what we were born into. Some of you took a job or took a position and everything sounded great. And you're like, I can't wait to start this job. It's going to be awesome. I bet it's going to be my ideal job. One week later, you're like, they did not tell me about all of this. Right? Or you walk into a marriage and you think, this is the love of my life. Things are going to be wonderful. And then later, you begin to find out family secrets and dynamics and things. And you're like, okay, okay. What is it like to walk into a mess? I just want to introduce the idea. And then I have some people that I want you to meet who really, for me, serve as a strong example of just really good people who chose to walk into a mess all because God called them to. Now, let's start. So the way life was meant to be lived, I think God designed it. I know God designed it where men and women, husbands and wives would come together, have children, raise them in the Lord, and every generation God would bless those families. And and well, wouldn't that be awesome? And some of us were born into those kind of families where your parents serve the Lord with all their heart and their parents serve the Lord with all their heart. And you just grew up. I've just always gone to church. I've just always wanted to serve God with all my heart. And you've never known any different, I think. So let's just start. That's the way life was meant to be lived. Let's just look at it. And we're going to look at it through the kings of Judah. Now, uh, if, if, if you remember your history, your Jewish history, at this time, because of Solomon's sons, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Israel split into the northern and the southern kingdoms, uh, the, Israel and Judah. All right now, Judah was still located around Jerusalem. So this was still, you know, the heart, the rest went up and, and started using Samaria as a place where they would go and worship God. And we're only talking about the kings of Judah right now. So here it is, 2 Kings chapter 12. Let's look at verses 1 through 2. Joash began to rule over Judah in the seventh year of King Jehu's reign in Israel. And he reigned in Jerusalem 40 years. His mother was Zabiah from Beersheba, and all his life Joash did what was pleasing, you know, in the Lord's sight because Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. Pause. Now, Joash uh, started serving God when he was really young. He was still a kid. His father did not care at all about God, and his mother did not we did not grow up. She did not care about God. And so there was no family dynamic where someone was instructing him in the way of the Lord. And because the parents didn't take that role, the priest did. And he said, you come. It was called walking in the dust of your rabbi. And he said, you follow me and I will lead you in the way of God. 
And so that's just kind of the way it is in the community where God wants to raise up people who will run after children and families who did not grow up in the way of God and teach them so that God can be restored in their family and in their life. And so this began a 137-year cycle of of father to son to grandson to great-grandson, all serving God. Look now in 2 Kings chapter 14. So turn over to 2 Kings chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Amaziah, the son of Joash, began to rule over Judah in the second year of the reign of King Jehoash of Israel. Remember the two different kingdoms. And Amaziah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. And his mother was was Jehoadan from Jerusalem. And Amaziah did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, but not like his ancestor David. Instead, he followed the example of his father Joash, 2 Kings 14, 1 through 3. But he did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, and, and he said, but not like his ancestor David. Instead, he followed the example of his father Joash. And so he followed his dad. He didn't have to have somebody else instruct him in the Lord. He followed his dad because his dad was following the Lord. Now let's look at 2 Kings chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Uzzah, the son of Amaziah, began to rule over Judah in the 27th year of the reign of King Jeroboam, the second of Israel. And he was 16 years old when he became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 52 years his mother was Jecoliah from Jerusalem, and he did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight, just as his father Amaziah had done. Now the generations have started, and fathers are taking the responsibility, and they're raising their children to follow the Lord. This is now two generations. Now, 2 Kings chapter 15, drop down to verse 32. Jotham, son of Uzzah, began to rule over Judah in the second year of, of King Pekah's reign in Israel. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years. His mother was Jerusha, I guess, the daughter of Zadok. And Jotham did what was pleasing in the Lord's sight. He did everything his father Uzzah had done. 137 years of family history. 137 years. Fathers teaching their children, bringing them up in the Lord. And when they pass away, the sons take the reign. He became king and he followed the Lord just as his father did. And when he passed away, he trained up his son to follow the Lord just as he did. And when he passed away, he trained up his son. And, and they're all following the Lord. And it was a good time in Judah. And God was blessing them. And when you read in the stories, even though there were other enemies who wanted to come in and defeat them, nobody had success against them because the Lord blessed them because they were following him. That's the way life was meant to be lived. And I know just talking about this, you know, it's like some of us are saying, man, it sure would have been good to grow up in a family like that. It, everything would have been different in my home if I'd have just had a father who honored the things of God and treated his family like that. I know, I know. Others of us are so blessed that we come into this assembly today and that is our heritage. And we can say, man, I've been so blessed. 
And, and as I look back on it, I've always just been able to experience peace or joy or goodness just because that's the family that I came in into. And so regardless of how you got here today, I think you can see it's the way that God wanted it to be. It's the way that God, and, and so for us, it's not really even as much what we walked into, but what are we passing on to our children? And this is so important. And so at the end of it, man, I'm going to call you. I'm going to say one of our major responsibilities that God has given us is raising up our children to honor the Lord. And we need more and more people who are willing to participate with us and just our families in this church and in our community. And then point number two, things took a turn for the worse by the time you get to chapter 16. After 137 years, this is what we read, verses 1 through 4. Ahaz, son of Jotham, began to rule over Judah in the 17th year of King Pekah's reign in Israel. Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 16 years, and he did not do what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord, his God, as his ancestor David had done. And that's, that's the writer's way of saying all these generations of fathers and sons and grandfathers and great-grandfathers who are serving the Lord, this guy is now going against all of his family heritage. And he made a decision. I don't know what happened to him. I don't know who talked him into something different. Maybe he was just intrigued. Maybe he was inclined to mischief. Maybe somebody led him that way. Maybe he experienced some abuse that you just don't read about in the Word of God. I don't know. Maybe he was just curious. Maybe he just didn't care at all about it. I don't know. All I know is he made a decision not to follow God. Instead, he followed the examples of the kings of Israel, even, listen to this, sacrificing his own son in the fire. When you read in 2 Chronicles, he sacrificed more than one son. He sacrificed several of his children to pagan gods. In this way, he followed the detestable practices of the pagan nations the Lord had driven out from the land ahead of the Israelites. He offered sacrifices and burned incense at pagan shrines and on the hills and under every green tree. In other words, he ran after pagan gods and pagan worship, and these, the gods of all the people who were around them, were awful. They were awful, awful, awful. And when it says, and, and really, as we begin to read, and we're going to get into it over the next couple of weeks, every time there was a hill, every time there was what they called them the high places, and I don't know why the high places, but they wanted all their shrines to be higher than anything else. They, as we get closer and closer up the mountain, up the hill to God, we're going to erect something, and they just erected all these shrines to where they could offer animal sacrifices to all of these pagan gods. And the, one of their big gods was the god of Asherah, which was, you know, a god of reproduction. And so they, I guess they wanted to attract more and more men. And so that was the place where all the prostitutes hung out. And you could go and you could pay a little bit of money and you could get closer to God by sleeping with the prostitute. And that was the way. And so now you have men turning their hearts away from their families and away from their children and out into their own appetite. And the destruction that that had on this nation was unbelievable. And, and it really, and just so, man, I'm just going to say, it, it begins with us. If, if the enemy 
can turn our hearts and our eyes and our minds away from our families and into wanting to satisfy our own appetite, the destruction that that has on a nation is unbelievable. And so in point number three, it says the world into which we step. What effect did that have on this nation? I pulled this out of 2 Chronicles, starting in chapter 28, just selected verses, and you can see them. As he began to turn his heart more and more away from God, the Bible says, in a single day, because son of Ramalia, Israel's king, killed 120,000 of Judah's troops, all of them experienced warriors, because they had abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors. And so all these men who are now turning away into their own appetite. Now, God just, they, they're, now they're destroyed. They went into a battle and 120,000 men were killed. Look at what happened to their families. Then the armies of Israel captured 200,000 women and children from Judah and seized tremendous amounts of plunder, which they took back to Samaria. Now, History records, and there's, there's all these little symbols and signs, especially in outside of the Bible materials that come from Assyria, because Assyria had attacked Israel and carried them away, and they were really in charge. And one of the things that they would do is they would take women and children to be slaves. And the way that they would do it is they would, and, and so I, I'm going to share this with you, even though it's a little bit graphic. Uh, because I just want you to get a picture of what's going on and because I want you to know what God is going to do two lessons from now. <laughs> but they would take these women and these children and sometimes some of the men who were not warriors and they would take these hooks and they had a chain attached to it and they pulled it behind horses and carriage and they would take these chains and they would take that hook and they would put it through the nose of the person up until where it grabbed all the cartilage and they would hook them in the nose and they would drag them a thousand miles away as slaves. Most of them died along the way. They would get tired of walking and when they would stumble they would be drugged and if they couldn't stand up, it would just take their life. And even though that's graphic, in two weeks, you're going to hear God say, because Hezekiah turned his heart toward home, he turned his heart toward God. And the king of Assyria stands up and he says, who's going to save you from me? And God speaks to that king. And he said, I'm going to drag you and your army by the nose away from my people. And you're going to die at a sword of your son. Right? So I want you to get this picture that because of this one king, this mass destruction has happened over all of God's people. And he continues, the Lord was humbling Judah because, the king, uh, because of King Ahaz of Judah, for he had encouraged his people to sin and been utterly unfaithful to the Lord. So that when King Taglapfizer, or I guess, of Assyria arrived, he attacked Ahaz instead of helping him. Ahaz took valuable items of the Lord's temple, the royal palace, and from the homes of his officials and gave them to the king of Assyria as a tribute, as a bribe. But this did not help him. 
Even during this time of trouble, King Ahaz continued to reject the Lord. He offered the sacrifices of the gods of Damascus, who had defeated him. For he said, since these gods helped the king of Aram, maybe they'll help me too if I sacrifice to them. But instead, they led to his ruin and the ruin of all Judah. The people, the men are killed. The women and children are drug, dragged off as slaves. There's no money. He gave away all of the, all of the kings, of the kingdom's treasures as a bribe. It didn't work. The people are defeated. All of Judah is ruined. And verse 27 says, And when Ahaz died, he was buried in Jerusalem, but not in the royal cemetery of the kings of Judah. And then his son Hezekiah became the next king. What would it be like to walk into a mess like that? We didn't ask for some of the stuff that is going on in our world. We didn't, we didn't ask to walk into a community where our children are being abandoned. 25% of them going hungry every night. Where it's so bad, I was just talking with some of the workers, I was talking with some of the people who are doing our lift ministry, and they said, it's so bad, the, 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 the pain and, and the abuse is so bad that by the time they finally do remove a child from a home, the trauma is so heavy, we're dealing with things we've never dealt with before. And it's overwhelming the workers. What's it like to walk into that kind of an environment? And how do you intentionally make a decision to change it in the name of the Lord? I have two people I want you to meet. I want you to meet Lori and Neil Lassinger. Where are you, Lori? You guys, would you come up? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones. Because I get to be in a small group with Leo, Neil and Lori. And I know a little bit of their story. And just as they come and sit down, I really don't want to talk too much about uh, the mess that they walked into. You need to know that Neil uh, was a senior pastor for 23 years, and he served in the Methodist Church. And if you're familiar with St. Paul's Methodist Church up in Pennsylvania on the campus of Penn State, and you know and heard the news about Jerry Sandusky, uh, who was a member of that church, he and his wife Dottie, then you know what Neil and Lori walked into. And a lot of that story had already happened, just happened, and the fallout was just beginning. And that pastor was gone, and Neil was offered the opportunity to walk into a mess. Could you have said no? Yes. You could have said no. But they decided not to. So, would you welcome to the stage for me, Neil and Lord last <laughs> So, I'm going to let them share uh, a little bit about the ministry. So, can you describe for me the, just the mess that you walked into and, and, and what you... Uh, well, 
You know, you don't know where you're going sometimes. I had served several churches and uh, over 23 years, but what I found was something that was way beyond. And uh, in that, I was, uh, you know, somebody, uh, many people would have said I was a fool, you know, but God doesn't put you in a place to make you a fool. And so when that time came and, and I came to the point of, of the decision, would I come to St. Paul's United Methodist Church because we don't have anybody in our conference that really wants to do this that could possibly do it? Um, well, I don't know that I fulfilled all those, but uh, we took a good shot at that and, and tried very hard to bring this church back to what it was or at least got to the point where people could at least have some hope in all of that. Can I say something? Yes, please. So when we, when we got to State College, it was about uh, six or eight months after the trial had ended and um, the conviction had been made. And um, the coach, retired coach, had been a member of the church, um, had been a prominent member, sat in a prominent position, brought football players and prestige into the church. Um, if you know anything about Penn State, you know that football is everything at Penn State. So we moved to, to State College, Pennsylvania, where Penn State is, from Missouri. And, and we basically said, well, thank goodness it wasn't Missouri. And that was kind of our way to deal with the, the upheaval. But um, the, the head coach uh, was revered. And we used to call the stadium a temple uh, between ourselves um, because that that was al it was almost a religion. In fact, the head coach, uh, there's a mural, and, and you can Google it if you want to, but there was a mural on Penn State campus. The head coach had a halo over his head. People liked to go there. They got married there. They brought their babies there. So if you can imagine, it was like gods with a small g fell and 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 so our church was in the midst of that the staff was in the midst of the, the for about six months um media had been outside the church and they couldn't go from their job to their car without going through media questions and stuff and and so they were stressed and fatigued the congregation was polarized some people sat upstairs because they agreed with the decision some people sat downstairs because they disagreed um, they didn't shake hands with each other because they agreed or disagreed on the verdict um, of what happened and so and so then we came from Missouri and we only knew a little bit about the news really and uh, and so that's where Neil started as senior pastor and so how did you minister I mean you had staff and then members and a hurting community and fallout. And I know, uh, Lord, that you personally were friends with and ministered to his wife, Dottie. And, uh, but how did you minister just to the people in this church with all that pain? You just have to be connected with God. 
whenever that kind of thing comes up. I mean, it, it's, it's brutal. And uh, when you find yourself in a brutal situation and uh, you just gotta, if, you, if you're called to do it, then you gotta trust that God will help you through it. And um, that, that was a, a big thing. And, and uh, you know, you can't even imagine how difficult and how all this craziness was going on. Um, without God, I would have been a puddle in, on the floor, I think, you know. But God helps and shows us the way when we are called for something like this or something maybe even small or something else one way or another. Just, I would, I would really like you to think about a time whenever sometime, you know, just reflect and say back in your, in your past and say, um, Gosh, now looking back, I can see God in that. I might not have seen it before and for a while, but now I see God in it. And that's the way I found myself in the midst of all that. I'd say that um, we started praying before we left Missouri. Um, it was kind of a tumultuous time for us when we left. Our daughter got married and we left like six days later. And um, <clears throat> so a lot was going on for us, but prayer and knowing that you're called, if you know you're called to do something, then you know that it's not in your own power to do it. Um, and of course, we really didn't understand what it would be like. So when you start, you don't know. In the midst of it, though, thinking of the staff, you know, pulling the staff together, revitalizing and helping them get their strength back, helping people recognize that judging isn't the answer, that God is the judge, and judging within the church just polarizes people. Mm -hmm. I think it's also important, important to note here that oftentimes people walk into something and then it's different than what they thought it was going to be, and they want to quit. It happens in marriages, it happens on jobs, it happens in friendships, happens in churches, and we want to quit, we want to give up. I think it's important to note, you might have wanted to quit, but you never did, right? Right, yep. <laughs> and, and, and you just stayed faithful to the Lord, even though it was taking its own toll on you. Yeah, yeah. For, and, and us <laughs> to get together, because, you know, if you're married and, and you're trying to do something and, you know, you've got to be on the same page and, and or else uh, this kind of stuff just tears apart families and tears apart pastors as well. And uh, so we we made it through that. Um, thanks be to God and thanks be to my, my wonderful wife. <laughs> um, I couldn't couldn't do it without her. Yeah. You know? So that that's that it takes it takes a lot and you have to humble yourself as well and be really close to God so that you know that what God's calling you to do is the right thing to do and uh, then you can 
have some of that strength, and God won't abandon you. Uh, I guarantee that. But sometimes it feels like it. <laughs> so yeah, I know that uh, when you know, as we talked, it's like oftentimes people want the pastor to fix something, and you didn't ask for the pain, but because it's not fixed, it lands on you. Why aren't you doing something about it? Why didn't you fix this? Or you know, you know, and so that happens a lot. And, and it just wears, uh, wears you out. Okay, as we move forward. It's, uh, just a little bit. Um, they don't have a clue of what this going forward is and how it really struggle, you know. So in those kinds of situations, hang on to God, hang on to the Holy Spirit, and keep on going. Right on. What's important to us? We're walking into a, a mess, a mess of families and children being abandoned and hurting, and we are willingly choosing. We've got all these families now who are willingly choosing, you know, just to participate and to get involved. We have a lot of workers, that just you guys, who are working in those situations, just all of us just serving in different capacities and different ways. But what's important to us as we willingly walk into this to make sure that, that we get it right and support each other? I'm taking this one. Um, and by the way, Lord, you have a, your degree, your specialty is you're a counselor and you work with hurting children, even in this town, around children who have been, yeah. okay. Yeah. Uh, I'm an infant mental health specialist at Lakeview Center. And my master's in, is in counseling psychology. But, um, <clears throat> If I think about what I've learned from walking into messes, <clears throat> not just um, this uh, ministry appointment, but also, uh, you know, I walk into messes almost every day. Um, a couple things. First of all, when you walk into a mess, you need to know that God called you to walk in. Don't walk into a mess that God didn't call you because then you're in the wrong mess. That's for somebody else. <laughs> Also recognize that when you walk into a mess, it's messy. So you need to remember that that you are purified by God, by Jesus. When you walk into a mess, sometimes you feel guilty because the pain needs to land somewhere. And um, I daily walk into my office w with people and I start to think, what did I do wrong? And I have to remember, I, d I didn't do anything wrong. But it's easy for the pain and the hurt to land on you. And then finally, when you walk into a mess that God called you into, don't get polarized. Don't judge. Because as soon as you judge, you'll have a different opinion and you'll polarize yourself. And um, we've seen that firsthand. And imagine half the congregation up here and the other half down here and you don't talk to each other. That's not the God's church. That's not God's church. Also, um, when you walk into a mess, there's people on the front line. There's foster parents. Um, there's kids. There's biological parents. Some of them might even be in this church, and we don't know it. Um, those people are on the front line, and they need to know that you care. They need your prayers. So if you know those people, they need your prayers. Also, uh, they need to know hands-on that you can help. So like yesterday, I wore mine, but um, I held one and two-year-old foster kids for three hours, and it was fun, and um, mostly. And <laughs> 
but our playground is really, really big for 17 um, toddlers, and keeping track of them was, other people here probably did that too. Yeah, so, um, also, uh, but anything hands-on. I know some people cooked meals for a foster family so they can have them in the freezer. I mean, imagine how that would be. If you're working, you have a couple of kids that came into your house a day or two or a week ago, three weeks ago, they're unruly, they're traumatized, and um, just having a meal you can pull out and heat up, fantastic. Um, so we did a lot of things yesterday on serve day, but we need to keep on doing hands-on things. Um, and uh, then we also need to let them know, affirm them, because those people on the front line need to know that they're doing their best in what is absolutely an incredibly difficult situation, and they can only offer their best, so they need our affirmation, not judgment, not whispers, not behind the scenes, whatever happens. They need you to affirm them. I think both of those two things are good. We need to make sure that we're really equipped so that we know how to minister, how to serve, and then we need to make sure that we are completely supporting those who are offering all the help and on the front lines, and those are the two strategies of our church. And then finally, how did you get to Pensacola? Go ahead. Uh, well, <clears throat> as some of you know, um, Neil's, di Neil's diagnosed with Alzheimer's, so um, after we were at St. Paul's for a while, he moved to a smaller church. Uh, in Pennsylvania, and he was unable to finish working, um, doing his job. So he had to take permanent disability from ministry. And at that point, we were living in a parsonage, which I don't think you have here, but a parsonage is a church that's owned by the, or a house that's owned by the church that the pastor lives in. So we didn't own a house. We could do anything we wanted. So um, we thought our daughter, Anna, she's actually there today. Um, is here. Our three grand grandchildren were here and one on the way now, so four soon. And um, we came to Pensacola. And then once we got here, somebody said, uh, you need a church with small groups. You have to meet friends and, and get to know people. So uh, somebody suggested First City Church and we came last June, I think, the end of June maybe. And uh, we never, we never visited any other church. People were friendly. We've gotten involved in a great small group with people that really care about us. Other people really care and support us. The preaching was good. The worship was fantastic. Um, we loved the worship time, and we just, we just never visited anywhere else. So this is our church home now. Here we are. Oh, yeah. Any final word, Neil? Yeah. No, is there anything else you want oh. to say? Um, where was I there? Oh, I, I just want to, out of all this, it's not about me. It's not about my wife. It's about God. And the thing about that is when you're Try, striving to find what God wants you to do, or if you know something just pops up, you know, even then maybe you have a part of that, and that you need to be able to do something about that. It, it's like, so now what do you do? And I tell you what you do is you pray and you pray.
and you pray and you pray and you pray and you pray, not just yourself, but perhaps with other people as well. And in that process, you can discern what might be for you. Because just the people that are in this, in these seats today, you have a part. If you didn't have a part, you know, then, then there's something missing to us in general. So, so I'd challenge you to really strive to think what part of this should I have and how's that going to make a difference to, to these people here and those that are out there one way or another. Um, we can make a huge difference. So the Word of God says, honor those to whom honor is due. And these two people, you know, sometimes you just don't know who's sitting next to you. Uh, but you have someone really important sitting next to you. These two are really important to me. For years, they poured their life, they gave everything they had just to serve God. And now, they need us. And I am so excited I get to walk life with you, you know. And um, Neil's fully aware of everything. He wants to talk openly about it. And, and sometimes he makes fun of it and just kind of jokes. And, and, and his wife will say something. He'll say, I, I don't remember that. Sometimes it's really good to be naive. And <laughs> it works. <laughs> Would you stand with me and let's just pray over them.